Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Our guest today on the Beeson Podcast is Dr. Carl E. Broughton. Uh, he's been one of the leading theologians and teachers of the Protestant Church and really of the whole Catholic Church over the last half century in our country and beyond, uh, an editor, a pastor, a professor, a theologian. Uh, he's really had a shaping role in giving us direction, guidance, and thinking about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a theologian, and what it means to be faithful to the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're honored to have you with us, Carl, here at Beeson. Thank you for coming and sharing this time with us. You've just written uh, a memoir, an autobiography entitled Propter Christum, Memoirs of a Lutheran Theologian. Tell us about that title, what it means, and why you chose it. Well, there's a little story about that uh, because I chose the title Propter Christum. That's, that's a big Latin, a huge Latin phrase in our Lutheran tradition. And it's, it goes right to the heart of my own self-understanding as a theologian. The whole phrase is sola gratia, per fidem, propter Christum, by grace alone, through faith, on account of Christ. Those are three, that's, that's like a tripod on which my theology sits. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. So I chose the phrase propter Christum because it's all because of Christ. All the n- nonsense and the mischief that I've done in the church is on account of Christ. I mean, he gets some of the blame, doesn't he? <laughs> but anyway, I, so I, I submitted that uh, title to the publisher, and he accepted it until the marketing people got a hold of the book. And so I got an email one day, and it was the ninth hour, and they said, we've got to get rid of that title. Latin people do not do Latin anymore. So I said, well, I'm very sorry about that. Um, I sent the book to my brother, who knows me better than anybody in the world. And he said, what does that word mean? He's not a theologian. Okay, propter Christum. He said, what does that mean? So he went to his Missouri Synod pastor. He's a member of Missouri Synod. Even though he's out of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, there's no Evangelical Lutheran Church in that area in California. So he's a member of this Missouri Congregation. He went to the Missouri pastor and he said, "What does propter Christum mean?" He said, "I don't know." <laughs> he should know. But yeah. He said, "I don't know." So he looked it up. He came back and he said, "For Christ's sake." I said, "I can't do that because it sounds like t- some of my tennis players swearing." <laughs> <laughs> so I said, um, "I'm going to keep it at propter Christum." But then in the ninth hour, they made me retract it. So I ended up with because of Christ. Okay. The book will be called Because of Christ. Yeah. Not for Christ's sake, but because of Christ. And it is because of Christ. Uh, some theologians have been uh, criticizing the tradition I come from as being too Christocentric. I could name the theologians who are criticizing this Christocentric principle, but I, I plead guilty mm. because it is Christocentric. It's because of Christ that we are Trinitarians. That we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's because of Christ that we are members of a Christian church. It's because of Christ that I'm baptized. It's because of Christ that I am still a Christian. It's because of Christ. So my memoirs, 
these are, by the way, it's not an autobiography. Mm. It's not about me and my family and my wife and so on. It's not about my experiences, except as a theologian. It's a theological yeah. uh, memoir. You say it's the memoir of a Lutheran theologian. Of a Lutheran theologian. Say yeah. a little bit about Lutheranism, you as a Lutheran theologian, and your background. You grew up uh, in Madagascar. That's yeah. a strange place, mm-hmm. isn't it, for <laughs> American Lutheran theologians to come from? Madagascar is the home of the lemurs and of the extinct Apiornis bird, the largest bird that's ever existed on Earth. Mm-hmm. And down in southern Madagascar, where I grew up, there were Apiornis eggs larger than an American football, as large as a rugby ball, maybe larger. And once in a while, people would come across an Apiornis egg where the dunes have been blown away and an egg is standing. And you'll find an Apiornis egg in many museums around the world. But the bird is extinct, has been extinct for some hundreds of years. But my parents went to Madagascar to be missionaries in southern Madagascar. And I was one year old, actually, when they dragged me out there. And growing up in Madagascar, I one word was upon my consciousness, and it was the word elsewhere. I ought to be <laughs> elsewhere, <laughs> because Madagascar is a very poor country, mm. and there are no amenities. And I knew that I wanted to be an athlete, and there are no sports except, well, there was soccer, and then aquatic sports, I mean, that we invented for ourselves, like swimming and diving. But I got a taste of sports when my father was on a furlough in St. Paul, and I got my first tennis racket and a basketball. And so I just had a knack for these sports, and I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be good at tennis and basketball. Ended up back in Madagascar. The tennis racket that I had, the strings broke. The balls got worn out the end of tennis. And so growing up in Madagascar um, was like growing up in a pressure cooker. It was a missionary colony, and so all of the missionary kids went to a private school run by missionaries. And it was an artificial kind of an environment. Uh, but we're all brothers and sisters. There were about 25 of us growing up in the same home, the same building. Uh, so it was a kind of an unusual situation. Uh, I was not an unusual student. Um, I didn't really like school. I liked, I liked sports. I w- waited for the bell to ring at 3 o'clock, and I could go outside and uh, play soccer and go swimming and that sort of thing. Uh, and I do not... In my memoirs, I'm not able to explain why I became a theologian. I'm the only one out of that missionary compound that became a theologian. Uh, I do know that we opened up every school day with prayer, and study of the Bible, and the singing of hymns. So whether I liked it or not, I was being marinated mm-hmm. within this Lutheran uh, devotional pietism and was very earnest, very very uh, very serious. So we uh, memorized huge chunks of the Bible and uh, we learned the hymns of the church and we uh, were catechized. So all of that was being put into me. 
And from Madagascar, you came to this country. You attended St. Olaf's College. I came as a, um, I spent my senior year in a uh, Lutheran uh, academy in South Dakota. Then I went to St. Olaf College, and I majored in philosophy. And for the first time, I became interested in ideas. I started reading Kierkegaard under Howard Hong. He was a great, great, he just died last week, 97 years old. And uh, I fell in love with Kierkegaard and uh, graduated from St. Olaf and I applied for a Fulbright scholar, scholarship to go to Paris, University of Paris, Sorbonne, it's a Sorbonne University, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, study uh, French existentialism and Kierkegaard, Jean-Paul Sartre and, and Kierkegaard. So I spent one year in Paris and I learned existentialism enough to hate it. Jean Passard talks about absurdity. I came, I I experienced the absurdity of existentialism and the Mm -hmm. angst, the ennui, the no end, no exit, all the things that Kierkegaard, uh, he was trying to lead people out of that into Christ. Mm -hmm. Kierkegaard was a pietistic Dane, as you know. Yeah. And uh, for him, it was all on account of Christ. But for Jean-Paul Sartre, there was no Christ. And there was no answer. There was only the angst, the bewilderment, the absurdity. Uh, I I decided I had to become uh, a seminary student to find my way out of this. So I went to Luther Seminary in St. Paul. And uh, the, all of the professors, of course, were Norwegian pietists themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I didn't uh, have a wonderful experience there uh, because I was considered a liberal and a radical and a heretic. Hmm. Now, why would you be considered that at Luther Civil? I had come with a philosophy major, and almost nobody had studied philosophy among my classmates. And I had studied uh, existentialism. And even the professors didn't know how to spell the word. (laughs) (laughs) So I was considered a kind of a weirdo. Mm -hmm. And in the classes, I was always always asking questions. And when you're asking questions and questioning the answers, it sounds like you don't believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, they begin to pray for you. They begin to wonder, where, where is this guy coming from? He's always asking basic questions. So when I was being colloquized for ordination, I sat at a big table with about 19 bishops, or they called them synod presidents at that time, district presidents. They didn't use the word bishop. And I was colloquized by all of these synod presidents, and they had a resume given by the faculty about me. And they they said, it looks like you're a liberal. Hmm. Uh, do Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in the Trinity? you believe in this? Do you believe in that? Uh, the questions were assuming that I was having all kinds of theological problems. I had already said that I have to go on to graduate school because I haven't learned enough theology. After three years, I felt that I was still ignorant. I said, I have to go on to graduate school. So I went to Harvard. Just the fact that I was going to go to Harvard, this citadel of liberalism right. was enough to paint probably a true picture of me. Uh, they probably had a true picture, but I, my answer was, 
I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. And I gave a straightforward orthodox answer to their questions. And that's the greatest miracle in the history of the world. The raising of Jesus from the dead. And that's my hope and the ground of salvation for me. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your work as an ecumenical theologian, but first say something about what you did at Harvard with Paul Tillich. I know you worked with him, that venerable theologian that we all read. Uh, uh, tell, tell us about what he was like and what you learned from him. I went to Harvard because Paul Tillich left Union Seminary to go to Harvard. And I had read two essays. I had only read two essays written by Paul Tillich, and they were on the Protestant principle and justification by faith. And I would always wonder, this is the heart of Lutheranism. What does it mean? And I read these essays by Paul Tillich, and it opened my eyes. There's a lot of meaning there. He found a lot of meaning in justification that I had never dreamed of. So I said, well, I want to study under a person, under a person uh, like that. So I went to Harvard just to study under Paul Tillich. And after one year, I took all of his courses, all of his seminars, and he asked me to be his teaching assistant. Of course, we were not good friends because he was aloof, very aloof from all students. But he, in a way, he kind of took to me because I was asking the kind of questions that German students would be asking, coming from a Lutheran background. And he looked upon me as Orthodox Lutheran. Hmm. So this was a kind of new identity I was gathering. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's interesting, your Luther Seminary uh, bishops thought you were uh, a heretic and liberal and Tillich thought you were orthodox. Yeah, right. <laughs> <All in. laughs> and I was, in my own self-understanding, by the time I left the seminary, I was, in my own self-understanding, a Lutheran orthodox person. Mm-hmm. I was, by the end of the... And that was because of Herman Price. I had a course on the Lutheran Confessions, and I said, I love this stuff. And uh, so he sort of adopted me. Um, And he was an alternative to the kind of pietism which, for me, was uh, not sustainable in the long run, educationally, theologically. So uh, I was Tillich's assistant, and I never became a Tillichian because he had had so much... uh, such a such a thick and dense uh, system of German academic or idealist categories, metaphysical categories, which I mastered intellectually, but they they never spoke to my heart. Mm. I mean, they never. I could never be a theologian like that. Yeah. Now you were a pastor before you became a professor and a theologian. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I've I've known about you and appreciated about your ministry is preaching. You really are a preacher at heart. Uh, does that come from being a pastor? Or ha- how would you talk about preaching and its relationship to theology? Well, I, I, I think that my theology is an extension of my preaching. Uh, so I think uh, if you would ask some of my students, I think they would say that I was doing a lot of preaching in my teaching. Hmm. And I also believe that I'm doing a lot of teaching in my preaching. So I do not see a lot of difference between preaching and teaching. Uh, I think that theology is theology for the preaching of the church. Theology that does not lead to the pulpit and away from the pulpit into the everyday world of the people is not good theology. So um, for me, theology 
as a theologian, I, I came to this understanding of theology, that I've been asked by the church to be in this classroom to teach these students why Christianity is true. So there's the teaching moment. I have to teach the truth against all the falsities out there. So I became an apologetic theologian, defending the truth of the Christian faith. And I also believe that a theologian is supposed to be the chief defense attorney for the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, so I'm like a lawyer in the classroom. They say Christianity is not true. It is. And this is why I believe it's true. I think this was my philosophical background, that I did not want to, I did not want to believe anything that's not true. And this is why I, I think I had this image of being a liberal, because I didn't want to believe anything anybody said if I didn't believe it was true. I didn't want to believe it, be, you know, because my professor said so, or because Luther said so, or because anybody said so. So I wanted to find out if it's true, it, and it's got to be true enough for me to preach. So I'm still there. That's still what I believe. Yeah. Now, you uh, are a great ecumenical theologian. I mean that in the sense that you've been a person who has been concerned about the unity of the Church of Jesus Christ uh, through most of your work as a theologian. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, what, what prompted you to make that a priority in your work, and not just your theology, but I would call it your theological activism? You're not the first one to ask that question. So <laughs> let me... Let me Facetiously, I have answered it this way. I grew up in Madagascar, and we were not allowed to date the, the girls of the missionaries because they were like sisters. They were untouchable. So we reached out to the French girls, and we got to be friends with the French girls. Guess what? They were Catholics. And one day, my dad called myself and my brother into the office and said, <clears throat> we hear that you're uh, fraternizing with French girls. Yes. Don't you know they're Catholics? Yes. My ecumenical spirit was born in Madagascar. <laughs> I said, these French girls that are so nice can't go to, they can't be all that bad. <laughs> so I've always had an ecumenical uh, attitude or spirit. I've, I've always, um, I've always believed in reconciling with those with whom we disagree. Um, I can't help it, uh, because I believe that the Malagasy Lutherans and the Malagasy Catholics should be one. They should be one. And they are one. They are one in Christ, and they know it. But somehow they haven't been able to figure out how institutionally and organizationally and, um, and, and um, liturgically to manifest that unity. And so the ecumenical um, movement is a huge challenge for me to try to overcome those obstacles that make us look like we're less than one in Christ. Have you ever been tempted to become a Roman Catholic? Uh, no. Many of my friends have, and they've become Roman Catholic, but I, I've never been tempted to become Roman Catholic because if I became a Roman Catholic, I'd be a very bad one. Uh, there's nothing Roman in me. It's not in my spirit. Uh, I am... I am the child of my bringing up. I've never left my missionary pietistic roots. I'm still a pietist. Schleiermacher said, I'm a pietist only of a higher order. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, am, I call myself, even though um, I am a pietist, I, 
uh, I believe that theologically I'm pushing towards what we call evangelical Catholicism. I'm looking for a reunion, reunification with uh, Orthodox, with Catholics, with Baptists, with Pentecostals, with uh, all Christians, all who believe in Christ. And we have our differences, and we should work hard to overcome those differences that divide. Yeah. I've talked about an ecumenism of conviction, not an ecumenism of accommodation. Because often in movements for ecumenical togetherness, uh, there's a kind of lowest common denominator approach and a really a, a reluctance to deal with the hard core issues of theology. I don't sense that in your approach at all. No, it can't be. It just can't be because uh, heresy is too important a, a, a problem for Christianity. It's, uh, I, I have an ab- actually an abhorrence for heresy. I have low views, short views, low tolerance for heresy. <laughs> What is I think heresy ought to be expunged. It ought to be obliterated. And I picked that up from Father Georges Florovsky, who was yeah. a great Orthodox theologian. And uh, I took his seminars at Harvard, and I learned to love the Church Fathers and their struggle for the truth of Christ, the truth of the Bible. And uh, uh, heresy next to apostasy is the denial of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And it's leading people away from the path of salvation, as far as I can see. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's like eating bad food. It's not good for the body. Would you say there's heresy in the church today? Uh, I'm afraid that there's, there's a lot of it. It doesn't go by the word heresy. It goes by isms. We've got isms. Isms are heretical. Uh, and I have, I have written books attacking these isms. And I'm part of a movement within Lutheranism, which we call, it's called Lutheran Core, the Coalition for Renewal. And uh, there is a problem of heresy. It's ecumenically and politically incorrect to talk about heresy, but I do anyway. Because heresy is choosing a way, away from the path of orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy is the right thinking and the right praise of God the right way to approach God. It's as simple as that. So I think that we do have a lot of heresies. I call it radical theological feminism, which is bowdlerizing the Bible. That's not good for the that's not good for the Christian faith. There is a pluralistic uh, theory of the religions that say that all the religions lead to the same goal, with or without Christ. They don't believe in the necessity of Christ for the world's salvation. I'm not able to. I'm not able to say that. I'm not a pluralistic theologian. I believe that uh, uh, there is salvation through Christ and Christ alone for all people, and that's why the missionary movement is so important. You know, there's a there's a movement within evangelicalism called the Emerging Church, which is a very covers a very wide spectrum of different opinions and beliefs, and some of the same things that you're talking about that may be more characterized of the mainline denominations, I think are also present in evangelicalism in an effort to reach out, in an effort to be more inclusive, less offensive. Uh, Some of these core issues seem to be very shaky in the preaching and teaching of certain emerging church leaders. I wouldn't say all of them, but certain ones. Uh, And so this is a problem that I think all Christians are facing today, not just mainline Protestants. I think that's true. I think Catholics are in the same boat with us. Catholic theologians are facing the same temptations and the same possibilities. 
as uh, as Protestants and uh, and evangelicals. I've read some of Brian McLaren's uh, books and other evangelicals. I think a huge chasm is opening up within uh, American evangelicalism, and it has to do with some of the uh, some of the basic issues. It goes back to the second and the third century against the Gnostics. Yeah. I sense a lot of Gnosticism within this kind of liberal uh, evangelicalism. Yeah. It's, um, it's I, I, I think that's the wrong way for evangelical. I would like to see the evangelicals reconnect with the great Catholic tradition mm. uh, without being Roman. Yeah. What I say in my memoir is that I'm, I'm an evangelical without being Protestant. I'm Orthodox without being Eastern, and I'm Catholic without being Roman. So I think it's possible, to, possible and desirable, and I'm encouraging people to be evangelical, Catholic, and Orthodox with the small letters. Now, one of the things that you have done to promote this uh, and to encourage it among younger pastors and theologians, well, two things. One, the founding of the center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology, which you did with Robert Jensen, and then also, I think as an offshoot of that, perhaps the founding of the journal Pro Ecclesia. Why did you feel that was an important initiative made in the early 90s? Uh, where is that movement today, and uh, where is it going? I'm no longer the executive director of uh, the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology, and I'm not the editor of Pro Ecclesia. I was doing those things for 15 years, after founding the center and then the journal with uh, with Robert and Blanche Jensen. And my wife has also been instrumental in all of this work that we've been doing now for the last 15 years or, or so. It's, well, actually, the center is almost 20 years mm-hmm. old now. Mm-hmm. It started in 1991, yeah. this is 2010. So yeah. it's, uh, it's still a very young center. Uh, this this vision was born out of my struggle at uh, at the seminary at the Lutheran Theological School in Chicago. I felt that the Lutheranism was drifting towards liberal Protestantism, and I felt that this would be the death of Lutheranism, and it will be the death of our church if it continues. So I wanted to show another way that I don't want to give up the evangelical roots of Lutheranism, but I, I saw it heading towards liberal Protestantism, and I don't see any future for Christianity in that. So we picked up the word Catholic. We're evangelical Catholics of the Augsburg Confession. I wanted to show with Robert Jensen that you can be Lutheran and evangelical and Catholic at the same time. Now, we're not without precedence because there are other Lutherans mm-hmm. in the 19th and 20th century that were leading the way. Uh, some of the Swedish theologians, some of the German theologians, some even in America, like Arthur Karl Piepkorn, mm-hmm. uh, we had predecessors who were talking about evangelical Catholicism. Uh, the Mercersburg movement among um, among uh, Presbyterians, uh, well, they're, they're actually, they're part of the Mercersburg movement is part of the Church, United Church of mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. Gabriel Thacker, who was on the board with yep. you, uh, is, is one of the leaders of that movement. They were speaking about uh, Protestant Catholicism. Uh, Schaff, Philip Schaff. Yes. And um, what's the name of the other, his colleague? Nevin. Nevin, yeah. yeah. 
anyway, uh, that is still a vision looking for some traction. And you ask about where is it going. Uh, there's a Chinese proverb that says, to prophesy is very difficult, especially with respect to the future. Yes. <laughs> and so we don't know where it's going. But the uh, center continues to hold conferences and yes. Ecclesia continues to be published. Yes. And it's being published uh, out of Toronto right now mm-hmm. at the uh, Wycliffe uh, School of Theology, uh, Joseph Mangina, who yeah. comes out of the Yale School with a barge and strong Barton influence. Yeah. He is an evangelical Catholic in an Episcopal sort of way. Right, right. Well, I want to ask you to reflect just for a few minutes about um, younger pastors, younger theologians uh, who may be listening to this podcast. What would you say to them as they are beginning their ministry, as they're struggling for a place to stand, some of them in very difficult denominational situations, not unlike your own, whether they're Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian, something else, uh, what would you say to people like that in terms of a kind of exhortation uh, to faithfulness in the gospel at a time of it's very difficult for many of them to take that stand? There is, a, there is health in the tradition. There's a lot of good, healthy food in the tradition. Find it. There's a lot of junk food out there. Stay away from it. So just like you have to decide how to eat day by day, you have to decide how to fill your mind, your spirit, your theological soul day by day. You have to make choices. Uh, when we go to uh, sh- do the weekly uh, grocery shopping, my wife reads the labels, and she doesn't serve anything to our family that is not good, healthy food. We should take the same attitude towards uh, scriptural studies and the studies of the tradition. We need to read the Bible, but through, through the eyes of faith and in light of the church's tradition, the great tradition. Uh, Luther himself made it clear that you cannot read and understand the Bible without the rule of faith. You have to read the Bible with, with the Bible in one hand and the creed in the other hand, as I was trying to say in my sermon this morning, yeah. that you can't read the Bible without the faith of the church. The church has been around for 2,000 years. Live out of that great tradition. And so the young pastor, the young theologian, has to reconnect with the great doctors, the great fathers, the great saints, the great martyrs, the great spirits who have gone before, and the great missionaries. It's all there, and it's accessible to us like never before. It's in every language. It's, and then ecumenically, do it. Don't do it alone in your own tiny little backyard, your own sect, your own denomination. Be an ecumenical theologian. Uh, if you happen to be a Lutheran, uh, read the people that Luther read. Don't just read Luther. Look to where Luther looked. Don't just look at Luther. He didn't want you to look at him. He wanted you to look away from him towards what he was looking at. And he was looking to the scriptures. He was looking to the tradition. He was an Augustinian monk. Uh, he knew Augustine. And so he read the Bible in light of the great tradition. So let's do like Luther did. Uh, uh, without repeating his errors. <laughs> Every theologian has their scotoma or their blind spots, and he certainly had his, and I've got mine. But all of us are in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or uh, Presbyterian. Or we're, we all have the same opportunities. We all have the same scriptures. We have the same tradition, and we can learn from one another. But there is, And I, I think for the young preachers... 
it's a very risky risky situation now because it's so popular to preach what the preach what the people want and uh, it's so uh, it's like starting a new business it's like serving up junk food rather than serving up haute cuisine mm-hmm. you know the best mm-hmm. food you have to be very careful what you preach to the people because the temptation is to preach what what pleases and tickles the ears of the people uh, yeah and uh, the other thing is people i'm saying that pastors are not working hard on their sermons I had a rule, don't preach one minute without spe- spending at least an hour in preparation. I would never get into the pulpit without spending, well, just to preach a sermon this, this morning. You know, I could rattle that stuff off, but I don't. Because I want every word to be carefully measured. So I'm sorry, I spent I spend a lot of time preparing that thing. And I think pastors ought to be in their study and they ought to be preparing their sermons and they ought to be praying and they ought to be struggling. Yeah. Like they're not. They're much too much like Johnny Carson standing up with their glib lip uh, just spouting off anecdotes and and little stories and don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And I think the preaching has to be much more doctrinal. Uh, all the storytelling preaching. People forget the stories the next day you can't think of them we we need to frame our preaching with the strong doctrines of the church we need to preach within the trinitarian christological framework and then our preaching of salvation will be much more clear and distinct that's what the people want I think deep down my guest today on the Beeson podcast has been Dr. Carl Broughton he is the founding co-editor of Proecclesia and the founding uh of the Center for Evangelical and Catholic Theology with Dr. Robert Jensen, one of the leading theologians of our day. He brought a a sermon in our Beeson Chapel service today on one holy, Catholic, and apostolic from the Nicene Creed. It's been a great blessing to have you with us, Carl, and I wish you God's blessings on all of your work that you do in the future. Thank you very much. We want to invite you to attend our Biblical Studies lectures here at Beeson Divinity School This year, February 1 through 3, our special guest will be Dr. Dale Bruner, an outstanding New Testament scholar and author of a world-famous commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Dr. Bruner is a wonderful communicator of the Gospel message, and we invite you to come with other friends to hear him present our Biblical Studies lectures here at Beeson, February 1 through 3. For more information, visit BeesonDivinity.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. We welcome your feedback, suggestions, and support. Beeson Divinity School is an evangelical, interdenominational divinity school training men and women for service in the Church of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work And we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.